0: Hey guys, welcome to Sunday Nights. It is great to see all of you guys here. Um, Last week, uh, Michaela kicked off this Sunday Night series that we were doing called Fire Stories with a phenomenal message and story. So again, we're we're big upping our speakers here because we've just been knocking it out of the park, um, which is a big expectation to follow. Um, But if you haven't seen it, follow it along. The whole point of this Fire Stories is realizing that within our history as the church, we have so much rich heritage that we can draw from. And often we we forget the stories that are behind because we're just focusing on these things ahead of us. Hopefully we'll get that sorted out as we go. We're so focused on the things ahead of us that we forget the stories that are behind us and we lose our imagination to think about what we could be and what faith looks like here today in our context for us. And so we've been digging into our history, digging out some of these stories and letting them come alive to us. So to begin this evening, I want to go back to Jesus. There's, a, uh, there's this scene where he's in the temple, and he's been teaching to all the disciples, and he's, been, he's going over all these different rules and all these different understandings of God, and then some snarky, uppity person in the bleachers wants to kind of get in a cheeky question, and so they, they shout out to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, you're saying all these things, but What's the greatest commandment? Like, what's the thing we need to follow the most? Jesus takes a second and he pauses. He says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the next thing is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. And ever since that, that, that decree of Christ has echoed throughout history as the thing that all of us as Christ followers are trying to aspire to. It's this grand old vision, but often life doesn't look it, like it that way, eh? Like, Jesus lay down, lays down the gauntlet for this amazing vision of what could be. And for us as Christians today, we're like, all right, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I'm going to try and not do some bad things today and get to church on Sunday, and hopefully, I've ticked the boxes see, we we take this grand vision and we shrink it down, and we assume that these small words about Jesus are just about trying to help get us through the next day or the next week. And it's easy to lose sight of how big that picture could be. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the story of one of our own. He was a New Zealand Baptist pastor, because I think his life embodied something of this taking hold of those words of Jesus so seriously. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And this guy's name was J.J. J. Doak. He's pictured right up there. And so yeah, he was born in 1861 and he ended up coming to New Zealand at some point. But one of the things I love about Doak is that all, out of all these amazing things that he did, he was not an old guy when he did them. Like he was really quite young. So in fact, when he was, um, he became a pastor at the age of 21. So he's born in the UK. And then at 21, he flew to South Africa and ended up pastoring a church there for a few years. And then after he'd finished pastoring there, he went back to the UK ended up getting married and then pastored two churches while he was 25. So he's simultaneously pastoring these two churches in England. And then when he's 33, he comes over here to New Zealand, ends up in Christchurch, and this is in the late 1800s, ends up in Christchurch and ends up pastoring the Church of Oxford Terrace Baptist Church there at 33. At 36, he becomes the president of the Baptist Union and ends up ministering here. So it's this phenomenal story. And the other cool thing about him is that he didn't have any like proper qualifications. Like for me to be a pastor, I went and trained at a theological college for three years to get my bachelor's of applied theology. Doak didn't have any of that. He didn't have any formal training. Instead, what he did was he worked really, really hard and he read heaps. Like he was reading all the time. In fact, when someone asked him about how he kind of learned and how he got to the state that he did, he turned to them and he said, read, my dear man, read and read systematically and keep on reading. Never give up. Mm. So he he had all these things, and he was self-taught. And so he's this amazing character who was young, who was passionate, and who worked hard and believed that God could do amazing things in his context. And so when he came to New Zealand, there were a few things that he got involved with that I think are really helpful for us to look at. And the first thing that he got involved with when he came to New Zealand was with Chinese immigrant rights. So in 1857, you had the gold rush in New Zealand. And at that point, there needed heaps of migrant workers to be able to go and work in the mines to till gold. And so they had quite a few Chinese come over at that time. And so pretty rapidly, about 5,000 Chinese came into the country and began working in the different gold mines. The issue was, uh, the rest of New Zealand didn't take quite kindly to the Chinese coming in. So one newspaper in Nelson called them bestial swarms, Mongolian filth that are polluting, and pure English colony. Uh, William Reeves, who was the labor minister at the time, had this to say. He said, "No, they have no civilization. They live in defiance of the rules of sanitation and were a danger to the public health and morals of the people. That's like from Parliament. He's saying this in a speech in Parliament. And the reason he's saying that they break sanitary rules is because what had happened was a lot of the Chinese homes ended up having their windows bricked up. And so New Zealanders would see that and they'd say, oh, there's something wrong with the Chinese. They, they don't like the sun. They like to live in cold, damp houses, so they brick up all their windows. Well, that blatantly wasn't true. It's was just that there were heaps of racists, and when Chinese moved in, they threw stones in their windows and smashed all the windows. And so the Chinese people did what they could to keep the heat in and they just bricked up the windows, and then the parliament was like, "Oh, they just love living in the dark." Doke uh, Reeves, at another speech in Parliament, uh, he recounted an incident where he read that he read of in South Africa, where a baboon had been trained to work at a railway station, and worked it very well. When he said this, there was laughter throughout all of Parliament. Reeves went on to say, "Look, if they wanted laborers who were strong and cheap." Let them import shiploads of baboons, because they would cost nothing, and if they were troublesome, at any rate they could kill them, which they could not do in the case of these Asiatics. This guy went on to be our high commissioner, by the way, which is a great, uh, great thing for our history. Um, so the whole culture was really antagonistic towards Chinese people, and it was common spread in everybody's minds and everybody's attitudes to be really angry with Chinese. Enter in JJ Doak. At Oxford Terrace Baptist Church, they really wanted to reach out to these Chinese members of their community who were living in the city. And so they started a Bible study in that area, in Chinese, to be able to reach out to them. And it actually went really, really well. A whole bunch of Chinese came and got involved. They started hearing stories of the gospel. Many of them became Christians. And then it came to a head one day when... uh, the Christchurch police were looking for a bit of an easy win. And so, what they did is they went to this house. Now, again, Chinese couldn't buy property very easily in those days because obviously no one really liked the Chinese. And so, there were in probably a few houses where people could get boarding, and everyone who was Chinese would end up staying at these houses because it's the only place where they could board. And often, they became little centers of Chinese culture and Chinese language. So, immigrants who were working so hard in a culture that's not their own, in a language that's not their own, even if they didn't live in these houses, they would often go to them just to hang out with some people who spoke the same language as them and spend some time in their own culture, which is a really natural thing that everybody does if you're an immigrant anywhere in the world. You end up coming towards your own countrymen. And in these houses, one of the things that would often happen is they play this game called Fantail, which was a really minor betting game. It really wasn't so much about the betting as much as it was about being together. But technically, betting was, uh, gambling was illegal in unsanctioned houses. And so one day, the police, who'd been there many times when they were playing fantail, never said anything. The police waited until a New Moon Festival, when they knew most of the Chinese would be in this house congregating together. And at night, they went and did a massive raid and arrested everybody that they could find. They ended up arresting 32 Chinese people and four Europeans. They, st- they ripped them out of the house. They paraded them through the streets, locked them up in jail. And in the jail, this is a dirt, mud floor, packed them into a cell that probably could have only fit half of them in normal terms, gave them four blankets to try and make it through the night for these 37 people. The following day, gave them uh, half a loaf of bread to feed them all and didn't come back to them until later in that evening. It was just shocking, horrible treatment. At first... They didn't even want to give bail to any of these people. Um, The reason that they said that the the police said they don't want to give bail to any of the Chinese immigrants was because they all looked too similar and they wouldn't be able to recognize them if they left the inn. It's terrible. Crazy racist, right? So, and then when they eventually did get bail, Europeans could get bail for five pounds, Chinese could get bail for 25 pounds, which was an astronomical amount of money. And so enter into the scene, J.J. Doak. Now, some of J.J. Doak's Bible study group were at the house when it was arrested. He had been out uh, doing an evangelistic crusade at Sprayden Baptist Church, been preaching the gospel, seeing people come to the Lord. On his way back, he hears about what the police have done. He diverts immediately and ends up going down to the courthouse and just starts tearing a new one into the police, into the judges, into the officials, and just starts tearing them apart, saying, this is so, so wrong. He went on to say, look, don't you understand? We've been trying to teach the Chinese that God is love, and we as Christians are some faint echo of God. What's needed is tender Christian sympathy, not these harsh, brutalistic rules that you're putting upon them. He even got a little bit cheeky and said, It might surprise the police to know that the Chinese were actually human beings with rights. The birthrights of all God's human family. Rights to justice and humanity and love. He ends up going out, he writes letters to every single newspaper that he can find. From his pulpit, he starts preaching about what it means to be just and kind to our neighbor, love our neighbor as ourself, and he pushes and he pushes, and then the local town council says, Oh, Maybe we'll look into it. We'll have some of our own police officials maybe sort the matter out. And Doak says, no, there's no integrity with that. Your own police are going to try and just cover their own backs. We need a full inquiry from Wellington, from the head government to come and sort this out. He ends up shouting and pushing long enough that the government launches a full inquiry. They do a study. They realize that the police had no grounds, no basis to arrest any of them, that their treatment in jail was unjust and inhumane. The police officials who were responsible ended up getting fired as well as they put money towards all the prisons to get them completely renovated so that the same instance wouldn't happen again. Isn't that amazing? Someone who came with the gospel of Jesus Christ and says, we need to love our neighbors as ourselves, and I don't care what the culture says, these people are my neighbor. And so I'll advocate on their behalf. And so that went really, really well. Doak did well in that case. Things went on, though, and one of the next situations that arose was the Boer War. Now, this was a war that ended up in South Africa between the the Dutch settlements and republics there and the British Empire. Um, Essentially what it was, there were lots of different reasons, but now when historians look back on it, it was basically the British Empire, uh, led by the wonderful man Cecil Rhodes, uh, wanted the republics for their own. There was heaps of resources, heaps of wealth, and they basically just wanted to confiscate it for their own. But at the time, it was really mixed. And what was fascinating is as the war kind of grew and developed, uh, Mother England called upon all of her many colonies for help. And what was fascinating was New Zealand took up the call with great fervor. In fact, they sent more troops into the war than any other colony per capita. If you look at the population size, we sent a huge percentage of our population into this war. Uh, one secular historian, Michael King, says that it's difficult to avoid the impression that New Zealanders at the time were spoiling for a fight and were just seeking any excuse to do so. And so the whole country was caught up in this war We needed to send our troops, we needed to go fight, support Mother England. And it was so popular that if you spoke against it, you could get consequences against you. So uh, the Westland Harbour Board, which is a, a big company, would fire any employee who said anything that was disloyal or unpatriotic. One top reporter for the parliament was sacked because he wrote an article and two pamphlets opposing the war. And the church got swept up in the fervor. The whole country, I mean, when when we sent off our troops, 50,000 people were at Wellington, came down to the shore to see them off. That was basically the entire population of Wellington went to go farewell the troops off to this war, which we really see as having no moral justification for. But the church got swept up in it, eh? They just saw it as their duty, and all these different denominations ended up writing and saying, "This is our duty to God and country to be involved in this war." Where it gets tricky for Doke, though, is that uh, his number two at Oxford Terrace Baptist Church, wrote a letter to the Baptist magazine, which was like the, the way Baptists communicated with each other at the time. Doke's number two wrote this letter, arguing that it was justifiable and blessed by God that the church needed to participate in this war. It was amazing. I mean, some of the things that he, he said was, look, from New Zealand, we're too far away, and we just need to trust that England is making the right decisions. Because he said, look, I believe that England's populace is far too permeated with righteousness to ever get involved with a war that would be unjust in the sight of God which is laughable, eh? (laughs) England is way too Christian to do anything terrible. And you can hear all the Maori being like, yeah, right, right? So it was just, it was this ridiculous thing. Uh, Ingold later wrote on at the end of this, he said, look, fact remains, as a nation, we have been graciously, graciously chosen as the means for accomplishing the divine purpose of securing the oppressed, liberating the enslaved, and illuminating the darkness of the heathen world, as has no other nation. Can you hear how he's using theology to justify it? Can you hear how he's using God to justify? Basically, England can do whatever England wants to, because God has chosen England to do all the things God wants England to do. Let's kind of see the circular reasoning. Uh, Ingold finishes off his letter this way. May the Boers learn that righteousness is better than religiousness. And may the immense native population of Southern and Central Africa discover that God made them to be men, not dogs. Which I'm pretty sure the population of South and Central Africa knew they weren't dogs. Like, It's pretty common, not many people like, oh, I'm a man, thank you England for telling me that. I didn't know that before. So Ingold writes this big letter theologically justifying British aggression as God's will. And Doak, who's the pastor of this church and who spent time pastoring in South Africa, reads this letter. And it's cheeky what Doak does. It's really cheeky. He probably could have had a word with his number two in person saying, hey, look, um, this probably wasn't the greatest way to go about it. But he doesn't, because the letter had gone out to the whole Baptist denomination. And so the very next month, you see a letter from Doak. And Doak writes back specifically to Ingold. It's like super kind of passive-aggressive, but kind of amazing. If you want to read it, I've got the letters later. It's so fascinating to see what they write. But Doke basically takes Ingold's reasoning and pulls it apart one by one pulls apart the theology, pulls apart the justifications, pulls apart the reasoning, and just tears it apart. And he finishes off the letter by saying these things. He says, look, for the past 20 years, the suspicions of the Boers, that the English financiers and the imperial statesmen would never rest until the republics were brought under the British flag, those suspicions were more than justified. The real issue has always been not the Boers' grievances or the the corruption of the republics, which is all the things the British were saying. Oh, those republics are so corrupt. We need to bring God's light. We need to bring God's truth there. He says, look, the issue is not that. It's not the bad way the Boers treat the natives. The issue has always been about the complete supremacy of the British flag above everything else. So which is right? to pursue a war which our worldly wisdom and pride of power have promoted, asking God to give us the victory, or is it to own our mistakes and work to amend them? Like this was explosive, eh? In the Baptist, this caused massive tidal waves because he was saying that very few people would ever dare to say, which is, yeah, England's done some great things, but she is not God's chosen kingdom. There is another kingdom that we are a part of. And England's done great things, but we cannot justify all of her actions if they're based on covetousness and greed. God cannot honor that, will not honor that, and should never honor that. And we as the church should never be complicit in condoning that or putting God's name to it as if that makes it okay. Crazy powerful words. And what a powerful statement for someone who, again, understood those words of love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, even if your neighbor are the Boers in South Africa. Hold these two together. And so he drops this bomb. And we look on it now and we're like, man, this is amazing. That guy knew God. But at the time, This one didn't work out as well for him as the things he did advocating for the Chinese. After the letter was written, he had a mob of about 30, 40 people surround his house and uh, his whole community, some members of his own church congregation ended up picking up stones and throwing them through the windows of his house. And in this ironic sense of poetic justice, Doak, who'd advocated so much for Chinese rights, his house ended up looking like a Chinese house with the windows all bricked up because his own people had smashed them. Eventually, it was was so controversial. It was so countercultural that his church couldn't take it. And he only lasted in that church just over a year before he had to leave. People's hearts were so stuck into imperialism that this word of God just couldn't sit. And so he ended up leaving. And when they asked him, are you going to be looking for another ministry here in New Zealand? Because he was the president of the Baptist Union. He was preaching all these crusades. All kinds of people were coming to faith. He was an amazing pastor. They asked, are you going to find another place? And he said, no, I don't expect that I would find anywhere here for me to do ministry again. And in the saddest turn of events, that's the last ministry he has here in New Zealand. And he leaves and never ends up coming back. He ends up moving to South Africa again and ends up picking up a pastorate there. And it's there that he has one of the most amazing encounters, which when I've read the story and I hear about him, I still kind of can't fully believe. Once he moves to South Africa... He looks around, and as Doak does, he looks around for those who are oppressed or those who are uh, on, on the bad end of justice or who are stuck in places of injustice, and he ends up getting involved with Gandhi and the passive Indian resistance. I kid you not, this is where he ends up. So he arrives, and he hears about Gandhi, and he hears about what? He's trying to do with the resistance and advocating for Indians' rights who were incredibly segregated, had no legal recourse to justice, and Gandhi was working to try and establish some sense of humanity for them there. And he worked tirelessly for Indian rights. And now he's pastoring a pretty much predominantly white church, right? But he's spending his time also doing this. And so Gandhi's actually written heaps about Doke, Like the Gandhi has written heaps about our Baptist pastor. When he first arrived, Gandhi wrote this. When Mr. Doak came to the cause, he threw himself into it, heart and soul, and never relaxed his efforts on our behalf. It was usual with Mr. Doak to gain complete mastery over the subject he handled, and he therefore became one of the best informed men on South Africa. And he loved the passive resistors as if they were his own congregation." And so he began writing letters to every newspaper, every journalist, every member of parliament, and every leader and official. He wrote and wrote and wrote, advocating for these Indians' rights. When Gandhi was eventually arrested and appeared in court, Doak was there with him. When Gandhi was sentenced to prison, Doak was there with him. And then when Gandhi got out, uh, he was attacked, uh, pretty much brutally beaten by some members of his own Indian community who thought he wasn't quite radical enough. And so Gandhi's very, very badly injured, and he's in hospital. And who comes along to the hospital? Doke. Now, Gandhi's written this uh, this passage in his journal, and I want to read it to you, because these are Gandhi's words, right? The famous Gandhi who advocated for for human rights, whose model of passive resistance ended up becoming the model by which we do civil disobedience today. These are the words he spoke over this pastor. Judging from the way he looked after me, from his nature and that of his family, he must be a godly person indeed. He's not exactly a friend, I'd met him barely three or four times before them, and that in connection with the campaign and in order to uh, explain the position to him. It was thus a stranger that he took into his own house. All the members of his family remained in constant attendance of me. His His son's room was put at my disposal, and the son himself slept on the floor in the library. And while I was ill, Mr. Doak would not allow the slightest noise anywhere in the house. Even the children moved about very quietly. Mr. Doak took the sanitary part of the duties on himself while I looked helplessly on. They wouldn't allow me to do even what I could have well done myself. Both husband and wife sat at my bedside through that first night. And then they came into the room every now and then after to see if I needed anything. During the day, Mr. Doke was busy receiving people who came to inquire after me. Every day, nearly 50 Indians called. And so long as he was in the house, he would take every one, whether he appeared clean or otherwise, into his drawing room, offer him a seat, and then bring him to me. And he did more than attend to me and attend to all those who came to see me. He also did whatever he could about the difficulties of our community. Listen to this. How can one say that a religion to which such a gentle, kind-hearted, and really noble person belongs is false in any way? His only object in doing all this was to please God. He prayed nightly while sitting by my bed. He said grace before and after taking a meal. And his children would also take turns reading from the Bible. I could see no selfish motive in him. All that one could see is truth. It's not often we come across such single-mindedness and nobility in Hindu or Muslim priests. I would only pray that there might be hundreds of Indian families just like Dokes, Isn't that crazy? That's Gandhi, who the whole world knows and reveres. This pastor came and waited alongside of him, prayed over him. Other passages talk about how Doke never shied away of proclaiming the gospel to him. In fact, often in their chats Doke would again and again and again explain why Jesus was the whole reason for his being and how he believed the whole world would come to be in and through Jesus and Gandhi was affected and profoundly moved by this man. Doke ended up writing the first biography of Gandhi that was ever published. And I can't I can't say this explicitly because there's no historical ties to actually make this connection. But when I imagine Doke, who would have been here in New Zealand, who would have known the stories of these people, and who would have known the stories of Parihaka, and the peaceful resistance that happened at Parihaka, you can't help but wonder, as, as he was hanging out with Gandhi, and nursing him back to life, you can't help but wonder if maybe Doke shared some of these stories. Because it was after these events with Doke that Gandhi started moving into peaceful, passive, civil disobedience. And that became the cornerstone of his movement. Now, we can't say it explicitly, but I can't help but wonder if those connections might be there because someone was prepared to love the Lord, his God, with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength, and to love his neighbor as himself. What a man, what a legacy. And his story is our story he's part of our family and part of our movement. And what I love about Gandhi is because we we get so easily caught up in nine to five Christianity. It is so, so easy to just get stuck in doing the same old things over and over again. I'll just I'll try and make it through this, and I'll try and read my Bible when I get a chance, and I'll try and pray if I can take the time, and I'll try to make it to church if I can do that, and then I'll try to be spiritual and do a nice thing every once in a while, and all that while I can watch as much Netflix as I need to, and go on the vacations that I need to, and get all these other things that I'd really like done. You see how easy it is for us to take this crazy high bar of radical Christianity that is modeled for us in the New Testament, and just begin to lower. And then when we think about how we're doing as Christians, we think, yeah, if I look around, I'm probably the same as everybody else. I mean, I'm not like crazy good, but I'm not like, nah, I'm pretty average. Doug blows that out of the water because Christianity was never meant to be this boring thing that you do if you have the time. It's not this side accessory to your life that you fit in if it helps you feel a little bit better. When Jesus said those words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, he opened up a revolution, a whole new way of being. And this church literally has transformed the world. And when you see someone take hold of those words and hold on to them tight and live their life by these words, you see someone like Doke, Someone who had a fearless love for God, for his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven, regardless of how hard it may see sometimes. In every one of those instances, Doak had to go against the public opinion. Even when Doak looked after Gandhi, all of the neighbors who previously really liked him were furious with him and would no longer associate with him. But there's words in scripture we have for that. I count everything as loss for the great privilege of knowing and serving Christ. Gandhi finished. uh, Doke ended up passing away in South Africa. He was actually scoping out a new area for a new church. And while he was there, he ended up contracting sickness and passing away. And when he passed, they did a small funeral quickly for him there. And the town that Doke was in eventually erupted with fury because they didn't have a chance to pay honor and respect. So they ended up going to their mayor and saying, you need to do something. And so the mayor ends up putting on a proper civic funeral that the entire town came to because this man showed a way of being that reflected Jesus Christ. And Gandhi, in the obituary for him, wrote this. Indeed, Mr. Doak treated the work that he did for us as part of his mission as a minister of Jesus and has held that he served his own congregation as he served the Asiatic cause. To him, this was never just a political battle, but it was a religious battle, a battle of and for humanity. If there were more like Mr. Doak in our midst, we would probably have no unnatural Inequalities between man and man. What a powerful statement. What a powerful life that is lived, an example for you and for me, because his story is our story. There was nothing that different about Doke from you and me. Remember, he didn't have all the qualifications. He didn't have everything. He was just some young guy who believed when God said he was going to do something, was going to do it. And when God said to love your neighbor as yourself, he did it and I share his story with us tonight. I preached about justice a few weeks ago, and I'm picking up on it again for a really specific reason. And I'll be bringing it to a close, so if the band wants to come out, and we'll wrap it up. Look, we've had lots of different moves of God throughout our church history. We've had the evangelical revival in the 1800s. We've had the, the Great American Awakenings, those have been amazing. We've had the, uh, the Pentecostal revival at the turn of the 19th century. Here in New Zealand, most recently, we had the charismatic renewal. These amazing moves of God that have swept our nation and transformed our society. And we're constantly wondering, what is God going to do? Look, as I read these stories, I can't help but wonder if the next thing God is going to do in our nation is going to raise up a generation of people who take seriously the call of God to bring justice and love to their neighbor, even if their neighbor is so different from themselves. I believe God is going to raise up young people from within this church and from within this nation who are going to be so passionate about seeing God's kingdom come that they're going to go the hard yards. They're going to write the letters. They're going to show up. They're going to march. They're going to lift up their voices and say, this is not okay. I believe God is doing something so Powerful, and if we rise up and if we take part in it, I'm convinced the whole nation will stop and think, God is doing something amongst them. They understand a way of being, a way of living that I need to enter into. They are a part of a kingdom that I want in on. I think this is ripe for us to hold on to. And so, if there are those of you who are there and in that space, can I encourage you as we sing this last song? pray, God, is that me? How can I get involved in your kingdom, in what you're doing in our community, in my nation, in my neighborhood? Because God is doing something powerful. And I think just like that video, it's just going to take a spark and the fire is going to spread and it's going to spread rapidly. The question is, Will we take Jesus' words seriously to love the Lord our God with everything and to love our neighbors as ourselves? Can we stand as we pray? God, I thank you. I thank you for the stories that we can look into to remind us what your kingdom actually is, what your life is actually about. Because truth is, God, it's so easy for us to lose sight of that. As we've got our obligations, as we've got the next thing we're meant to do, as we've got our responsibilities, it's so easy to put our heads down and just think that we're trying to get through surviving. That if we just say a quick prayer, and that if we just attend church every once in a while, that that we'll be doing okay. And God, you have grace for us. But Lord, I pray that the stories of Doke and the stories we keep looking at would awaken a dissatisfaction within us. To not be satisfied with just going from same old to same old. To not be satisfied with the status quo. To not be satisfied by just going from day to day to day, monotony to monotony, years going by, nothing changing. God, raise up a passion and a dis, this holy dissatisfaction within us. Set us on fire with a passion for your kingdom, with a passion for your word, that we would proclaim Jesus to everyone we meet. Kick us out of our houses and our comfort zones, that we would go spend time with those who don't have them. Challenge us away out of our preconceptions and our friend groups that we would begin to spend time with those who wouldn't want to spend time with us. Those who won't come into these church doors Push us, challenge us, God. Light a fire within us, I pray. Lord, we open up our hearts to you. God, I open up my heart to you afresh and say, God, ignite me as you ignite Doke. As you used him, would you use us? As his story transformed his community, God, use us to transform ours. Because we believe you can do it. And we long to see you do it because our nation needs you. There are so many lonely, isolated, and hurting people around us. And they need your kingdom of hope to come. So Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.